This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Jenny O'Dell is a visual artist, a writer, a critic, a Stanford University design lecturer, a journalist, and a renegade. Her new book is not prescriptive, but seductive. Its title, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, encourages us to rearrange our brain, redefine productivity, and to be human and of a place. Jenny, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. Jenny, when I read this book, I thought, well, it could be a memoir, it could be a manifesto, it could be an intellectual journey of exploration, it could be a warning, it could be a guide, or it could be all of the above. And at RJ Julia's, we always have shelf talkers, you know, to describe our staff recommends. Which one of those would you pick to describe your book? Oh, that's a hard question. I I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time describing my book to even friends. I don't know. Maybe it depends on what, what someone seems like they're looking for mm-hmm. uh, would influence it. I mean, I think of it as – I don't have an easy description, but it reminds me a little bit of, like, a garden or something where, like, I planted a bunch of things. Yeah. And there's sort of – you know, much like the garden that inspired the book, there are lots of pathways that you could wander through. It's it's like I created a space, and the way that you use that space is kind of up to you. It's almost a little Rorschachy, meaning yeah. you can look at this material that you've put together and take away different things, either when you read it again or based on your own bent. Yeah. You know, I am kind of the type of person that doesn't want to impose anything on anyone. So Mm -hmm. they're kind of, I feel like it's just kind of a big pile of food for thought. And I don't even want to influence in a way like what someone would use that for, why it would be useful to them. You're just sharing it. Yeah. So speaking of sharing, one of the things that I was incredibly struck by is the range of journalists and writers and essayists and mythological people that you cover, you know, like you cover Walter Benjamin and Hannah Arendt and Thomas Merton and Seneca and Plato. And it made me curious about, have you always read like that? Do you keep a notebook of their sayings? Because the book is filled, is packed with incredible things that any of them said or you learned from them. I wanted to pick up each one of their books. Mm. How do you aggregate all that? I have a pretty systematic way of reading that um, I think I started in grad school. So I think I started this for academic reasons, and then it just became a habit. But if I read something, now I do this with everything that I read because I don't know what's going to end up in some project down the road. But, you know, if I was reading something I knew I was going to need to use later, I probably, if it's an interesting book to me, I will use like an entire pack of like stickies <laughs> in one book. And yeah, then, like this? Yeah, yeah. But the, the, <laughs> like the little tiny ones, because I use so many that I have to be able to see them. And, right. and then at the end, 
I will wait a couple days and then I'll go back and I have a book. I have two book stands. I have one for my studio and one at home. I'll put it on a book stand and just go through and type, literally type up all of the quotes that have stickies on them. Really? Um, which is incredibly time consuming, but it saves a lot of time. Not only does it save a lot of time down the road, but it is almost like my reference guide to that book. So even if it's a library book, I can return it. And mm-hmm. if like three years later, I remember, oh, there was something in this book. Or I want to know what were the parts of this book that interested me because I actually have a really terrible memory. So um, I might not even remember why I liked a book. So if I open that file, I can see, you know, just some of the quotes that I thought were interesting. Plus, I wonder if the practice of typing it in actually reinforces the concepts in your brain. I think so, especially if, you know, I've been reading the book uh, and it's taken a while. You know, by the time you get to the end, just simply revisiting that quote and then, yes, typing it out, you know, might even illuminate some other reason I found that interesting that I wasn't aware of at the time. As I started to read the book or I looked at the title and I thought about reading it, some people might think of the book as a self-help book or that you're recommending digital detox or vacating the world or an advice book. But rather, your definition of doing nothing is resting our focus from the attention economy and replanting it in the public physical realm or a term that you use of resistance in place. So let's kind of break that down. Define for us what the attention economy is. The most literal definition of the attention economy, I think, is one that you'll find, you know, widespread across people who write about the attention economy. So that's uh, mostly design decisions in, say, you know, social media, things like notifications, the little red circle, um, you know, various pop-ups, things that um, people are spending a lot of time on figuring out how to keep you on a platform as much as possible and engaging as much as possible. But then, you know, there's a larger kind of definition that's just, you know, like all of advertising, for example. Um, yeah. Like there's a long history of this, the study of human attention in order to capture more of it. And then I think on top of that, in the, in the current situation, there's things, certain kinds of assumptions that come with or that someone might be subject to who's spending a lot of time on social media. So things like the idea of the personal brand, the idea that you kind of cease to exist if you're not expressing yourself all the time online. Um, these are things that I think, even if someone's not actually sitting down looking at Twitter or Facebook, is still affecting the way that they live their lives. So for mm. me, that is also part of the attention economy. You know, that reminds me, I wonder what your observation about this would be. Uh, A couple of years ago, I interviewed Sherry Turkle, who's up at Harvard and writes quite a bit about what all the technology is doing to young people. And one of the things that she talked about is for people who are creating personal brands, that they are widening the gap between their public and personal self, which is a driver of anxiety. And, and a destabilizing element of mental well-being because now you've got literally a divided self. What would your observations about that be? Would you agree with that? Um, I agree somewhat, but I think almost, I mean, it'd be great if you didn't have to do that at all, right? But Of course. But for, you know, for instance, for young people who are growing up in in the situation that we're in right now, I think it might actually be almost better to have two delineated selves versus trying Mm. to mix them together 
the same way that almost like it seems almost related to work-life balance or something. And again, I think it's somewhat depressing that that someone would have to do the work to create this persona. But if you it's almost in, in my head, it's like it's more troubling to imagine someone for whom public and private are completely mixed together or there is mm. no, or there is no longer a private self like something that we talked about in my my internet art class this past year one of my students was doing a presentation on fashion bloggers and um, the difference between their their Instagram profiles and their YouTube channels and I, I this is something I was not aware of but their Instagram profiles tended to be you know, heavily curated. Everything looks very perfect. That's kind of the point of Instagram, right? Yeah. It's a still image. So you can stage the photo and um, just the whole platform kind of encourages that. And then apparently some of them had these YouTube channels that were almost like behind the scenes, like bloopers, where it's like, you know. The, As I, they were shooting the Instagram shot. Yeah. Or, or moments Oh, that's of, hilarious. Yeah. Or even just like moments of vulnerability, like, oh, I you know I got rejected from Fashion Week or, and I think it's like a, an attempt to sort of relate with the viewer, right? Like, I'm not perfect like here my, my perfect instagram is over here but this is like my real life and and we were kind of talking about it in class like well if that's supposed to be hmm. the behind the scenes what's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes is there one anymore yeah. which i find very troubling very troubling so jenny you're talking about this in a very interesting way because what Shel- uh, sherry turkle was talking about is if in fact you're putting on a self that's your public branded self, the other person, the real person, doesn't actually exist anywhere. I I like what you're saying because that's an idea of bifurcating in a healthy way. She was talking about it like the other one, the real you, becomes secret. Mm, I see. And doesn't really interact with anything or anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, and that's, I think, what I'm worried about with something like that YouTube situation, which is, Yeah. yeah, who is... Who is who is behind the scenes, or is that like a sort of atrophied self at that point? So the so the attention economy is you've got all these companies whose entire profitability is driven by their capacity to keep you attached. Yeah, and invested, like you know that that you think it's important. I mean. It's amazing to me how, you know, after not that much time spent on Twitter, it can start to feel like Twitter is the world, you know, mm-hmm. like that that the that you're seeing the boundaries of politics on this one platform and then and then you step back and remember how many people are not on Twitter, right? Or like how right. many people are not even on social media um or people who yes. you know are participating in politics in some other way or not participating at all, not even on social media, right? Like there's all of these different ways that people are in the world, but when you're kind of caught up in this very seductive and seemingly complete universe of of supposedly different expressions, it starts to feel like those are the actual boundaries of reality. So, so the second part is that you want us to question what we consider productive, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're geared towards being productive, and I guess we think of social media, even being on it, as a form of productivity. How do you want us to rethink productivity? I think I'm just advocating for a more nuanced idea of what Mm. productivity is. So I think we're currently working with a pretty narrow and literal version of it, which can pretty easily be summed up by like, you know, forward at all costs, you know, or producing new things just because 
new things need to be produced. Things need to get bigger, better. Yeah, they need to exhibit some type of growth. And I think we also privilege the idea of, you know, straightforward production, right? Like putting something new in the world that wasn't there before. Mm. Um, so things like inventions and, you know, like the the word innovation, you know, like is, is tied to that kind of ethos or that like obsession with some something demonstrably new, like very easily understood as new. And then, you know, at the same time, there are all of these things like acts of maintenance and care and rest <laughs> and sometimes removing technology or having a simpler design there are cases when that is so obviously the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And and yet, because we have this really narrower version of productivity, it appears like backward. Like that, you know, like we're going backwards somehow because we're stuck in that that kind of metaphor. Well, and I was fascinated because your art is not taking new things, right? Describe how your art aggregates things that exist to have us think about them differently. Yeah, and it's similar to the book, right? Like that's yeah, what I'm doing in the exactly. book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so rearranging words. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I um, I think the best example is probably my artist residency at um, Recology SF, which is also known as the Dump. Dump. And uh, artists are given three months and a studio there, and they have access to the public disposal area. So that's you know not the garbage bag garbage, but kind of everything else. People decluttering, things going out of business. You know, you would expect maybe an artist in residence to get materials from that and make something new, like make a sculpture, make a painting, uh, installation, something like that. And my project was simply to extract, you know, it, for some reason, I, I went with 200. This is very typical of me. Like, I could have done 100, but instead it was like this marathon of doing 200 yeah. objects. And I would take each one back to the studio and spend what ended up being an increasing amount of time researching where was it made, why was it made, what is it made out of, you know, as as detailed as possible. Like, what does the factory look like? How many people work there? Like, where in China is this? I don't, I'm not satisfied with just China, you know? And so at the end of that, three months, I had these 200 objects. I had basically, it looks like a phone book, the thing that I produced with that information that just has photographs and then the information. And the actual exhibition was just a bunch of shelves that we put in and the 200 objects with little tags on them that you could scan with your phone and get all of that information. You could look at the factory on Google Maps. You could watch an old YouTube video of or watch a YouTube video of an old commercial for that thing. So there there was an incredible amount of work that went into it. My God, yeah. It shows the limits of our understanding or how we think of making because it still felt like I hadn't made anything physically, right? Right, right. um, And so— Because it wasn't a new product. Right, right. And and so as I mentioned in the book, there was a woman at the opening who said— she was very confused and said, uh, do you actually make any—or did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? And ever since then, I have described putting things on shelves as, like, what I do. (laughs) You know, all of my art could be described as putting things on shelves conceptually, you know, one way or another. Even the book is kind of putting things on shelves. Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed art, other, you know, other art projects that are like that, where the artist kind of creates a frame or a new context and then steps away. But the viewer would never have been able to see those things in that light if the artist hadn't done that first step. You know, as I listen to you, it really takes the notion of art in the broadest possible way, right? Because when we're looking at art, whether it's a classical painting or it's your items on a shelf or it's Ellsworth Kelly's seemingly black palette, 
there's an interaction between us and that art that frees the brain, right? It doesn't matter whether you painted it and it's something new or you put the toaster oven next to the umbrella. I don't know that you had a toaster yeah. oven and an umbrella in the, <laughs> from the dump, but it would be that kind of thing. Yeah, right. It's, it's exactly, it's creating a new relationship between the viewer and something else. There's an Ad Reinhardt painting in one of the museums at Stanford that it's just it's just a black painting. I think it I think it's just a black painting. Or it's very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next to it, it has um, one of his cartoons that he um, would make a- around the same time. And that it's basically a cartoon of an abstract painting and <laughs> a little like cartoon guy. And he's pointing at it, laughing and saying, "Ha ha! What does this represent?" And then the painting gets a face in the next panel and it's pointing back at him and saying, like, what do you represent? And then he kind of like the, oh, that's the little guy. Fabulous. Like, and then he kind of passes out, like just <laughs> from the surprise. It's like yeah. kills over. Yeah, yeah. And then at the bottom, I forget there's some text that says like the painting will only mean as much to you as it will it, you basically have to meet the painting in the middle. Like it's not going to yeah. come to you. You have to come. You have to at least go part of the way, and that's you know one of the things that I mentioned. In oh, the, I love that idea. Yeah, I always show it in my class too because that that doesn't just apply to art. Like it applies to everything. Everything. Yeah, that could be what needs to go on at Twitter, on Twitter, yeah. right? Yeah, meeting each other. <laughs> yeah, or or simply, I I love I love the way that kind of art reminds you of yourself. And also of your agency, hmm. because, um, you know, the opposite type of art to me is like, you know, I talk about how much David Hockney didn't enjoy one point perspective Renaissance painting where it's like, here's a scene. You're not part of the scene. There's a single vanishing point. So where the, the point at which you are assumed to be looking at it is, is static. And whatever, however you're looking at this doesn't really matter. There is a message to be communicated here and hmm. you either get it or you don't. Versus the type of painting that Hockney did and enjoyed, which was, you know, it there is no single vanishing point. It's there's a very active relationship between the viewer and the painting, and you're led to think about the process of even looking in the first place. Like it is a looking at a Hockney painting is a you know especially the later ones is an opportunity to think about how even when you're not looking at a painting, you're you're kind of doing this collaging process of looking at all different things and stitching them together, and that is a very active process. And so this practice of uh, remembering that you are looking and then on top of that cultivating like a more active process of looking, like taking control of that, almost like you mm-hmm. can take control of your breath, I think is something that could be so useful right now because the attention economy relies on a passivity and kind of wants you to forget that. It's kind of trying to do the opposite. It wants you to forget how long you've been on it, that yeah. you have a body, like where and when, you know, your coordinates are. You're just kind of supposed to disappear and into this or become this kind of abstracted cognitive force that likes or does not like things. So that was the 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 third part of this doing nothing that I was going to talk about, that one of the things that is very, very much permeates your book is a sense of place, a sense of nature, and a context for how we exist, which is what you say the attention economy is taking away from us. It's taking away context. So the first context that you introduce us to in the book, which was was very visceral to read, was the Rose Garden in Oakland, California. So describe for us what your experience in going to the garden is like. It's one of my favorite places, obviously, I guess, from the book. 
Um, it's becoming one of mine, just yeah. reading about you being there. Yeah. Well, if you ever come to Oakland, I will we, go there. We should go there. Um, yeah. It's a kind of unusual. Well, when I think of a rose garden, typically I, I imagine like a sort of square base with rows of roses, and the point is sort of like to beds, go. beds of roses. Yeah. And you go and you look at the roses, and that's kind of the point. This rose garden was built in the '30s. It was a WPA project, and it is has kind of different sections. So there's a one that's... How big or small is it? Is it acres or no, an acre? I'm horrible at estimating spaces. It's it's not very big. Okay. But, but what I find interesting about it is that the way it's laid out is such that you can spend a really long time there having different... It's sort of like a, a labyrinth, right? Like a mm-hmm. labyrinth could be small, but it's designed in a way that you could spend a lot of time there and you can have a lot of different perspectives on the same space. Right. So it has kind of different sections. It's I think its technical name is Amphitheater of Roses because there one section is kind of oval and set it down into a hill. Mm. So it feels very enclosed. So there's height. Yeah, it's down it's surrounded sort of by by a hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a whole other section that has a waterfall and there's some redwoods. So it's also a really interesting mix of Obviously, cultivated roses, but then things like oak trees, which are native, um, redwoods, which are also native. And they, those were planted, you know, back in the 30s. But so you can see that there's this intentional mix of the traditional rose garden and kind of more uh, wild park. Does the design of it stay dynamic or the way in which it was designed in the 30s continue to inform it? It definitely it has. I don't think it's changed much. I think that there was a section that might have been added but one thing that I really love uh, about it that that brings some continuity to, you know, when it was built and now is that there is a, a kind of promenade in the middle that's it's just called Mother of the Year. And they have it's kind of hard to describe, but as you walk up the promenade, there are numbers on the sides and you realize that those are decades. So it starts with 50 because they started doing this in 1950. And there there will be 10 plaques um, with women's names in them. So that's all of the mothers of the year in the 1950s. So it goes 50, 60, 70, 80. You also start seeing the names change. So it goes from being, you know, Mrs. Full Man's name mm-hmm. <laughs> to Mrs. The Woman's name. Then you get Miss. Then you, they drop that all and together. it's just Susie Q. Yeah. Then the names don't sound all white anymore. You know, and they have point. a ceremony. Yeah, they have right? a ceremony every year. And it goes up to 2050. So as you're walking up, you see the last mm. one, and then there's just blank spaces. Wow. Yeah, I find that really lovely. <laughs> well, I think it's a lovely notion that that's in the garden. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book, that the garden was an inspiration for me in thinking about about maintenance and care as a form of, you know, I not productivity, yeah. but something that is really, really important. That but a un- type of being. Yeah, and a type of work, you know, yeah. that makes all other types of work possible. And so I, I just think about my own mother and how much, I mean, she was basically my assistant. Like, even when I was uh, out of grad school, like, all of the art projects I did, my mom helped me with in some way. I mean, just like all of the things that she did as a mother that probably wouldn't be described as productive, and yet there are so many things that wouldn't have even been possible without that. You know, I should have looked up the definition of productivity. Because what I liked a lot that you talked about is sort of unleashing the idea of being productive to be far more encompassing. 
which brings me to the other piece of the book that I was fascinated by. You know, a lot of books that might cover some territory that you cover. Nobody covers it like you do, Jenny. But (laughs) that might cover the same territory are talking about mechanisms of retreating. So you start by talking, early in the book, you talk about the communes of the 60s, which you might think you would come up with as like the perfect way to accomplish how to do nothing. But tell us what you discovered about the communes and how you ended up thinking about them. I think that I I probably went into it, yeah, expecting to find... Some kind of utopia? Yeah, although I think I was already influenced um, by, you know, the human condition by Hannah Arendt. Yeah. I, I have always been interested in the tension between... I'm obsessed with that book. Yeah, I I mean, that's probably the book I've read the most times mm. of any book. Um, but that that sort of tension that she talks about between design and reality almost, and this this on, ongoing temptation to kind of design away the need for politics. Right. So I think I, I had that lens kind of already going in. Which and, was the notion of the communes, right? That you would take away the political structure and there would be this kind of organic, collaborative way of operating. Right. And I I've, I still, like I say in the book, I've, I find that original impulse really inspiring. And I also have to acknowledge that I, I think that there are probably some communes that were and are successful and you don't hear about them because if you really go off the grid, you go off the You're grid, off right? The grid. <laughs> but um, but certainly the, the ones that I was reading about, it sounds like they, you know, they were trying to escape from an intolerable situation that you know, reading about, I could totally relate to that feeling. The 60s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and also just like wanting to get some kind of grounding and have relationship to some land and and form a community that felt authentic and, and sort of the opposite of what they had been experiencing. But it, but it turns out that, you know, if you have a group, any group of people is going to have politics that is just inherent. Two in, people. Two people, yeah. Um, you know, one thing, I actually didn't think I cut it out of the book because I had too much stuff about communes, but I find it really interesting that commune that is that does still exist, that is in the documentary called Commune, mm-hmm. it's in the Klamath Mountains, incredibly remote. On their website, they basically have the equivalent of a, a constitution. I mean, it reads much more informally than the constitution, but it is a series of agreed-upon rules that as you're reading them, you can see how they're they're responding to all of the things that have happened in the past. Like, don't drive a car in that you can't drive out. Clearly, someone did that at some point. Right. And then it, it contains— So the, it, too, is organic and responsive to what they've learned over the life of the commune, apparently. Right. There is a political system, right? They had to—and mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that it's democratic. And I think that the the communes that I was looking at that, that didn't survive were ones that did not— so motivated by trying to get away from the idea of politics that they never reconstituted another political system. Mm. And 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 on top of that, there's sort of the problem of the fact that even if you move, you know, out to the country, you still um, are in a country, you know, a capitalist country with laws and um, yeah. certain realities come up, like how do you raise your children? And some people are on welfare. And it's just, it's, you can't, I, I think for me, it was a lesson in how hard it is to totally extricate extricate yourself from the system and also that you carry a lot of things with you, yeah. you know, ideas f- from be- growing up in that system. So so you would come out of that research concluding that any group that gets together needs to come up with a political system, but what that political system looks like could be more responsive to the th- to the to the ideas that you're talking about. 
Is yeah. that fair? Um, yeah, I think for the the way that I'm sort of invoking the the stories of those communes is more to just show. I mean, I, I think I, I refer to it sometimes that chapter is like blocking the exits. Yeah. Because chapter one is the the sort of um, like that painting the scream. <laughs> that's how it feels. That's that's my expression yeah. of this moment. Right. But then at the end of that chapter, maybe it was I've had it was like for what what's that movie where the newscaster says I've had enough. Oh, what is that? <laughs> well, I know. What, I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right. Um, that's you in the first chapter. Yes. And then you read that and and then maybe your reaction is, I want to head for the hills. So the next chapter is, you know, well, Wait. if you were to head for the hills, Hold on. here are some of the challenges that you would run into. And maybe maybe what you're trying to get away from is actually not something that you, you address by physically going away, right. but rather that you kind of reorient yourself within the time and space that you, you already are in. How can someone begin reorienting themselves? Because you very much, to my reading, conclude that you do this in the world, mm-hmm. so to speak, that right. you do this in the world. What does that look like? If someone is listening to this conversation and they, I, I'm glad, they're saying, I'm glad Jenny screamed for me because I can't stand it either. <laughs> and I know you don't like to be prescriptive, but how does one begin to, you know, the word I used in the introduction, how do they begin to rearrange their brain so that they're weaning themselves from this, you know, suction cup that's the attention economy? I think observation is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned the Prejudice Lab uh, in one of the chapters, uh, which I find really inspiring as an example of, um, you know, the, the Prejudice Lab basically goes to groups of people and and shows them, demonstrates in different ways through like conversations and just pre- their own prejudice, right? And it sounds like from my research that they've been pretty successful. And so that's just one example of, I don't even want to say self-awareness. It's almost like awareness of self in the world, like mm-hmm. the interactions of the like self in the world. perspective. Yeah. Um, and and it, oftentimes I find that that just really either takes a pause, an interruption, slowing down, or, or being surprised, or being in a, an unfamiliar situation. So um, if you think about something like prejudice or habit, it it or the uh, participation in the attention economy, a lot of it relies on sameness, doing mm-hmm. the same thing, um, being in the same situations, and oftentimes I think imagining your life spreading out to the future as the same as it's going to be now. So not even being kind of open to surprise um, or or unpredictable ideas or things. So I, I often just start with what, just watching, like the idea of watching, watching yourself watching, mm-hmm. like watching yourself watching an ad. I find that to be really fascinating. Right there. Yeah. Or... Um, you know, one example I sometimes use is of th- this conversation I had with my boyfriend recently about Instagram ads. And we were just talking about how nefarious it seems that for us anyway, scrolling through an Instagram feed, it's a little bit depressing is not the right word, but you, you feel a bit weird, right? And in that moment of emotional weirdness, you're served an ad. And oftentimes mm. the, the ad, you know, is maybe targeting uh, a feeling of insecurity or needing to have things that other people have. So we were just kind of throwing these hypotheses around. So you're vulnerable. You're you're looking at a feed, and maybe it's about the perfect family 
with their kids and you just broke up with your boyfriend and you're (laughs) 40 and you're not going to have a kid. And then they write to you about taking a vacation or looking beautiful. Yeah. When you're vulnerable. Right. And it's so, and I'm like, that's That's so. That's me. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I'm like, (laughs) that's that's so smart. I mean, it's horrible, but it's smart. And so, yeah, we were talking about this and out of curiosity, um, we're like, okay, let's like, let's look at our ads right now. So we, we both get out our phones and we were looking through, um, when you look at Instagram stories, I didn't know this. He taught me this. You can just swipe through the whole thing. Um, like oh, you don't have to go through all either. of them. So we're just swiping through to see what are my ads and what are his ads. And all oh, of, I love that idea. Yeah, it's you should try it. It's it's fascinating because his were all um, snack foods, um, and mine were all like overpriced beauty products and yoga related things. Jenny, I love this idea. Like you could have a party. <laughs> and invite like four friends over and have everybody go so the ads are presumably reacting to who you're following or where you spend time i'd be curious what the algorithm is that the ad is responding to right i am too and i and i even though i don't know i got to pay of- attention to what ads even show up right and that, but and that's that's sort of what I'm saying is like that curiosity is the beginning I think of getting out of the attention economy. Yeah. And I and the reason I really like it is because there there are things about the attention economy that feel so depressing and just dystopian. And um, curiosity for me has mm. been a lifeline out of um, yeah. out of that feeling. And I I really like the idea of repurposing or using curiosity as a weapon against the attention economy because it's it's fascinating, right? Like it's fascinating yeah. to not even to look at, you know, why is this ad being served to me, but what's in this ad? What font are they using? What color are they using? Why did they use that color? Mm-hmm. Um, what, that already is pulling you out of what the attention economy is trying to make you do. Yeah. Right. Like I was recently talking to someone who who made this point that for an ad to be the most effective in a way they almost don't even want you to fully look at it. Like, of course, they want your eyeballs on it, but they sort of just want the message to go into your head without, like a brand name, to go into your head without you ever having yeah. registered that. That it's subliminal. Yeah, um, or, or something around subliminal. And and so this is sort of the opposite of it, where you you render something opaque and you just and you look at it. Like, you don't look through it, you look at it with curiosity. And I think you can extend that to so many different things that are unexamined elements of the everyday. And that, to me, is the beginning of disengagement from the attention economy. I love that unexamined elements of the everyday, because that really characterizes how you can pull yourself out of the attention economy. Like, what you you know, the example you used a few minutes ago of watching yourself watching an ad, this is taking it even a step further. Like really thinking about the component of that ad. What's that ad responding to? You know, what's it trying to sell you? Where was it made? Goes back to your project in San Francisco of taking 200 objects and and sort of creating an entire world around each object. Yeah, totally. And I think it's important that the the objects were not... I didn't go into the dump looking for, you know, vintage things or things that yeah. seem really crazy because what became apparent was that any object, you know, like there was a My Little Pony toy from 2011 in the archive that I created and it had just the weirdest story behind it. And every, I mean, everything 
everything very quickly becomes weird when you actually think about it for any Drill amount down. of time. Yeah, and um, there's almost an element of of science fiction about things. Or I like using the idea of science fiction to think about the present. I love looking at ads and imagining them as ads in a futuristic dystopia that was written 20 years ago. Because, mm. you know, whenever someone does, you How know, clever. like, like a, makes, you know, a movie about dystopian future and they're doing that world building and like how would things actually be in this world? And they always have those dystopian ads, right? Yeah. Like, so if you start looking at current day ads like that, you start to see how truly strange and, and very specific they are. So speaking of specific, one of the things I was struck by that as I read the book and as I thought about how you think, I was struck by what almost seemed diametrically different. On the one hand, there's something very encyclopedic about what you do. And on the other hand, there's something very organic and freeform about what you do. You know, and even as you described how you aggregate the material about books. So I'd like you to comment on that. But the thing that then cracked me up is I read that your favorite book when you were a child was the 1987 edition of the American Medical Association Family Medical Guide. And and that you would start with different symptoms and then try to follow them to, like, a conclusion that would be an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about what you loved about this book. And do you think that that observation about you happily coexists? Yeah, I think that is a really—I think you can ask my parents and they would tell you the same thing. And I think it has a lot to do with their personalities. I mean, my dad is in a— my dad is an engineer and has numerous patents, um, you know, for electronics and is a very smart guy. And yet he has the messiest office in the entire company. I mean, I've seen it and mm-hmm. it's just <laughs> to utter chaos, you know. And he, you know, he's the sort of the the one that will ride his bike to the top of a mountain and, and sit there for a really long time. And then my my mom is the one that like my mom never forgets anything. Mm. Like, she is extremely detail-oriented. She's the encyclopedic uh, yeah, part of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, extremely thorough. She's been my proofreader for a really long time. Like, I guess since I learned to write. Um, wow. So, yeah, I think it probably has something to do with that combination. But um, I think they, too, were baffled by my love of the, the medical guide. I just, I think I, I've always really liked maps and flowcharts. Like, definitely since I was yeah. a little kid. And, and so the whole first part of that book is just by the symptom and then it has these flow charts do you like are you sensitive to bright light yes or no and you just follow it and uh (laughs) And you love that (laughs) i love that and i would read all like all the descriptions of all the diseases and my thing about going to medical school uh no but i was very very interested in biology Mm -hmm. in in high school and i'm kind of coming around back around to that reading the book yeah and so it's kind of coming full circle but but I just remember when I was obsessed with that book, my my dad went out and bought uh, an atlas of the human body that's much more appropriate for, you know, a kid. And it's be- it's like color illustrations and it's really beautiful. And, and he, I remember he gave it to me and he said, I just want you to know about all the things that can go right with the body, <laughs> you know. And I think I was like, oh, thanks, dad. And I Oh, because he saw of, you obsessed with everything yeah. going wrong. And then I kind of flipped through it and then I just went back to the medical book. <laughs> so, and, and Jenny, the other thing that was interesting when I think about this encyclopedic uh, part of you and then what 
what you describe as impactful listening is describe for us when you started bird watching. Like, what did that look like when you were using the guides and where did it go? Mm-hmm. And it's still going. Still going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it really started with this book called The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman that I bought at Walden Pond, my local bookstore. It's like my favorite bookstore in the world. That I book, love a bookstore called Walden Pond. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's too perfect, right? Yeah. Um, I was just really unprepared for I was just bowled over by that book. I mean, it's it's sort of a summary of research around how intelligent birds are, which for a long time, birds were not thought to be. And when I say intelligent, I mean the human measure of intelligence, yeah. right? And so one of, obviously she talks about crows in that book because crows are very intelligent and can recognize human faces and they can teach their children things. And I you know there are crows in my neighborhood. So um, as I describe in the book, I befriended some crows on my street. So really like bird watching started with crows for me. And I still I still know those crows. They still come by every morning. Uh, I have a peanut in every pocket of mm. every bag or pair of pants just in case I run into them. And so it kind of opened up from there to scrub jays, which are also very, very smart. They can remember up to 200 places where they uh, buried snacks. Oh, oh, really? And they can also, uh, if they see another scrub jay, see them burying it. They will fake them out. They'll pretend to finish burying it, and they'll come back and get it later. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, I just it really started with those two, and then um, I'd had a bird guide for a long time. And I just hadn't used it, so I started using it. And I'm very, very fortunate to live in a place with a you know insane level of biodiversity and in, in bird life, mm. just because of the bay and also the hills that are nearby. Um, there are just amazing birds all year round at different times. Um, so it's been, I'm, I'm kind of like learning in the best possible place. Yeah. And what it made me think about is, as a person who has been slow to appreciate nature, having grown up in an urban environment, I remained urban-based. But as I read about you doing bird watching. It made me think about the breadth of observing you could do. So, you know, you know, so first you might want to just identify the bird. Oh, good, I see it's got a yellow this and a that kind of beak. And, and then you move to understanding them in context, right, and how they operate. And all of a sudden you're immersed in it in an entirely different way. Yeah, it's like you can't get that far in bird watching without it just turning into watching. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite examples that, that I think I have in one of the chapters is there's a bird called a wren tit, and it you will just almost never see one because they they have Spell a very it? like a wren, like W R E N. Oh, W R E N. Yeah. They are very consistently in a certain type of shrub, in a certain type of environment. And so they make this very distinct sound. And that's very I mean, if once you learn it, you definitely know that, that it's a wren tit. Hmm. But what does it look like? It's kind of nondescript. It's like a medium-sized gray bird. I've only seen one once because, like I said, they're always deep in the shrub making their little mm. sound. And so for me, it's like you can't understand that bird without understanding the type of shrub that it will be in. It's almost like it's part of the bird. <laughs> so the one last topic I want to cover. So you were born into the lion's den, right? You you lived in, you were born in Cupertino. I was actually born in Mountain View. Oh, Mountain View. Yeah, even, even more. Even <laughs> better, right? Yeah. Even better. And yet, and you teach at Stanford, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, apartment house next to the lion's den yeah. or in the lion's den. Yeah. So as you're teaching your students, because you teach 
pretty regularly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What course are you teaching? What are you finding? And how do you find kids today who are one of the most premier universities responding to what you're talking about in the book? So I teach two classes, actually three classes. Um, One of them alternates, but they're all digital media classes. Um, And they are all in the art department, but typically uh, have students that are not art majors. We have very few art majors there um, in undergrad anyway. Uh, So and they're often coming from outside of the humanities as well. So it's been really interesting and valuable for me to articulate the value of something like art to a mindset that might be more prone to, um, you know, systematic or optimizable ways of doing things uh, where there is a right answer and there's mm-hmm. a better way to do things. I have to say that they're, they're often very open-minded and they're excited to try something new. Do you think it changes how they—do you think classes like that will begin to change how— Google or or Facebook or Instagram will operate, or do you think that's that's so ingrained? I mean, what? How will this impact these students as they take their place in the technological orbit? I definitely feel like every quarter there are at least one or two students who feel like it feels to me like they've really taken things from the class to heart, and yeah. and they might. They might do things differently. Are you planting revolutionaries? In your- <laughs> I mean, I, I did have a friend who used to teach there with me who is now at San Jose State who used to joke that uh, she considered our jobs to be social practice, which is like a whole area of art, you know, uh, that like teaching there in yeah. itself was a, an art project. Already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know what it ultimately, I, I don't know how effective my my teaching is. Like, I have no way of measuring that because, yeah. you know, they leave and uh, I mean, they're some, off. Some of them definitely. You're not keep keeping in touch, but... card catalogs on them to <laughs> yeah. find out where they go. <laughs> no. Well, and some of them, a lot of them, have already interned at uh, you know Facebook and Google. Yeah. That's pretty regular. And there. you've done work at Facebook and Google. I have. I have been an artist in residence at Facebook. I, I was not a resident at Google. I did like one project for them. Mm-hmm. It was a mural for a data center in Oklahoma. So it's out there. So Jenny, what would you? You know, your book has gotten not to coin a pun, uh, an enormous amount of attention, lots of very positive uh, reactions. What for you would be what you'd hope the book would have accomplished or engendered in conversation? Probably two things. I think um, on the individual level, I would hope that it just gives someone a different experience of the world that they're already in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am inspired in that by some of the art pieces that I talk about in the book that have done that for me. I, as, you know, in encountering those pieces, I've just been struck by how generous that feels. Um, mm-hmm. After seeing the John Cage piece that I describe, I will never hear I regular sounds. I love that. I, I really want to urge when people read the book that they, you do have an index. They can look yeah. up John Cage that was a fascinating segment section on what listening is and isn't. Right, and how art can teach you different ways yeah. of listening, and and it's not some you know abstract, uh, fluffy thing. It, I actually don't hear sound the same way anymore. You yeah. know, for good for the rest of my life. So, I sort of humbly hope that my book has a similar effect on someone, and I've been really, really 
pleased by the number of people who have told me they they downloaded iNaturalist, which is the app that I mentioned. You can take yeah. pictures of plants and find out what they are and that they're learning about all these plants around them because that's I, – I mean, I'm addicted to that feeling and I the idea that I could communicate that to someone else is just – Amazing. So that's that's one thing. But the other thing that I really hope um, that it accomplishes is once you have disengaged in that way, sort of like wiggled a little bit free of of habit and the attention economy, that you might sort of start to look around, you know, asking yourself these questions about what is what is productive of what and for whom and why. And you might, uh, as I have, especially in the last year, kind of ask the question, Okay, who who's around me? What what do I care about? Who's around me who cares about the same thing? What are they doing? And often cases like what have they been doing for decades that I didn't mm-hmm. know about, right? Uh, when's the next meeting? Like how can I fit myself into that? It's like finding points of entry or finding something to grab onto that is around you that is not part of the attention economy, but is something that you can participate in. I suspect that a lot of what drives someone towards social media, especially in an addictive way, is is a a feeling of fear and rage and insecurity about everything that's going on. And that's a valid feeling. Unfortunately, you go to social media to sort of assuage that or something and you just get more of it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. It just gets exacerbated. Yeah. It reminds me, um, I, I I write a dear reader letter to our customers at RJ Joya's, and we were writing a piece about shopping local in response to Amazon's Prime Days. And one of the one of the phrases that I thought about too when I was reading your book is, and I, I don't remember if these were the exact words I used, but the world we live in is dictated by the way we each live. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We are not powerless. Right. Right. And it's so, you know, it's amazing how easily that insight slips away. Yeah. Yeah. Where we think we're not. So one of the things I want to – there's – before I close, um, one of the things I got um, – I think this came from your publisher, but I really loved it – is the five books you'll never part with. And I thought this was such a great list. And we'll put it on the podcast website so that – you know, it's Susan Buck Morris's The Dialectics of Seeing. It's about Walter Benjamin, who mm-hmm. we both like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Spell of the Sensuous, Hannah Arant's The Human Condition, Wisdom Sits in Places, and Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. So we'll put these up because I think they'd be great reading. Uh, but here's what I'd like to uh, close with. When I read your book, the one of my favorite quotes— is from Ralph Waldo Emerson in his essay, Self-Reliant. And the quote is, it's easy in the world to live after the world's opinion, and it is easy in solitude to live after one's own. But the great man is he who, in the midst of the crowd, keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. And I think what your book does is create the possibility of each of us finding that perfect sweetness. So I want to thank you uh, for that. We've been talking with Jenny O'Dell, who is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.